Good morning. Let's get started. Keep saying I'm not going to go very long, and then I end up going long. <clears throat> so, before we get started, let's pray. Ah, it's really loud, seems like. Father, just thank you for another opportunity to come together and worship you, learn from your word, uh, so that we might grow in a more intimate uh, relationship with you, grow to love you more, uh, grow to um, be in greater awe of you, and live in a way that is more pleasing to you and that glorifies you. And just pray that you apply the word to our heart today to transform us into Christ's likeness, and pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to remind you, one of the reasons that I spend a lot of time um, quoting Scripture, because that's really what systematic theology is, we look at the whole counsel of God's Word, what Scripture says about a particular uh, topic or doctrine, and then we synthesize that and briefly comment on it. You'll find that in most commentaries, uh, or not commentaries, in most systematic theologies, uh, that's what you'll see, lots and lots of scripture and, and little uh, commentary on those passages, unless there's something that's very uh, difficult uh, to understand or where they may appear to, be, appear to be a contradiction, but it's not. Then there'll be a lengthier explanation. So this morning, uh, the study is going to cover uh, the attributes of love, grace, mercy, and patience. Those are the communicable, more communicable attributes of God, <clears throat> those attributes that we share or that are communicated to us. And patience, another word for that in older uh, translations, is long-suffering. So you, you'll hear, hear that interchangeably um, this morning. Scripture is full of references uh, to God's love, so much so that the love of God can be seen as one of the unifying themes of the Bible, unifying themes of Scripture. God loves his creation, mankind, and in particular, he loves his covenant people, Israel. Deuteronomy 4, 34 says, And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, he loved Israel. Isaiah 43 and 4, uh, Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Now, the Hebrew words that are translated as love have uh, several different layers of meaning. They speak of love as having tenderness and closeness of feeling toward the object of love. And they speak of love as being inseparably bound to the object of love. Can't be separated from that object of love. This is a love that won't let go of the one that is loved regardless of what that object is doing. And it's seen over and over again in God's relationship with Israel. If you've read through the Old Testament, you're well aware of that. Israel constantly, you know, they go their own way. They constantly rebel, but God continues to love them and restore them. <clears throat> in the New Testament, the primary Greek word for God's love is agape. Now, that is a self-sacrificing, self-giving love. It's a love that loves the unlovable, and it's not given because the one loved deserves or has earned that love, but simply, it is simply given out of the giver's choice. Nothing in the one 
that is loved merits the love that is given. And it's a love that seeks the good or it seeks the benefit of the one that is loved and not the giver. We can say that God's love means, and this is just brief definition, that God eternally gives of himself to others, those that he loves. Giving himself, he gives good to others. <clears throat> now, going back to the Old Testament, this self-giving, unmerited love is clearly exhibited in God's love for Israel, as I have already mentioned. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8 uh, is another passage that displays that. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. God loved Israel because he chose to love them. No other reason. Nothing in them merited his love. Not because of anything in them. Hosea 11, 1 and 4 states this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Again, God is seen working for and providing for the benefit of Israel. And that's really amazing considering uh, how repeatedly unfaithful uh, Israel was towards God. But God continued to love them, continued to restore them, continued to provide for them. And it's really uh, vividly portrayed in the life of the prophet Hosea, <clears throat> if you're familiar with that prophet in the Old Testament. Hosea's wife, Gomer, not a, a name that I would probably give my daughter, is unfaithful. She is basically a harlot. And yet, God uses this situation as an example of Israel's unfaithfulness to him. He tells Hosea in Hosea 3.1, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So even though Gomer was unfaithful, and Hosea had every right to get rid of her, had every right to divorce her, put her out. God commands him to continue to love her just like he loves Israel, who continues and continued to play the harlot with other gods. <clears throat> In spite of Israel's continued unfaithfulness, God promises to continue to love them, to restore them, to save them spiritually, and to bless Israel because of his love for them, not because of them, but because of him. Okay? Isaiah 63, 9 says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. And Jeremiah 31, 3, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Talking about Israel. So his love for Israel never ends. It's eternal, everlasting. <clears throat> Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will 
quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This self-giving, this unmerited love that will ultimately restore Israel is seen most explicitly in the new covenant. Remember, the new covenant is a covenant that is made with Israel, not with Gentiles. We are secondary beneficiaries of the new covenant, but the new covenant is made with Israel. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God's love for Israel is eternal and will ultimately result in their spiritual restoration and blessing. That has not taken place yet. It will at some point in the uh, future. Then, in the New Testament, we see that God's very essence is love. In 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And then the most profound display of God's self-sacrificing, self-giving love is the giving of his son in order to save people from all over the world, not just Israel. And you all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Then Jesus speaks about this sacrificial love in John 15.13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. But Christ, God the Son, died for us, not when we were his friends, but when we were still rebellious sinners, essentially his enemies. And then Romans 5, 8, and 9 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners and we were enemies, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So in Christ's death for us, we see the ultimate expression of God's love for us. And that's exactly what John, 1 John 3.16 says. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to also lay down our lives for the brothers. In 1 John 4, 9 through 10, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, Not only have we been saved from the consequences of sin, granted eternal life because of his love for us, but another really unfathomable blessing is that because of his love for us, he has adopted us into his family. He didn't have to do that. He could have just forgiven us for our sins, and we wouldn't go to hell, but he goes far beyond that and makes us his children, adopting us. 1 John 3, 1 through 2 says, Uh, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We weren't children of God before he redeemed us, even though just about everybody in the world that you talk to who has you know, some spiritual inclination will refer to the people, uh, all the people in the world as God's children, and that is simply not true. Those who are redeemed are his children, adopted into his family. Now, because God loves us and has made us his children, we have a future and a hope, <clears throat> a future and a hope, an inheritance that will never fade away, and that hope, that inheritance is also eternal. 1 Peter 1, 3-4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Okay? We also have the assurance that even when we suffer, it is under God's loving hand, and it's always for a good purpose. Uh, I recommend that you read all of Hebrews chapter 12 at some point. makes that very clear. That's the whole point of that chapter. But uh, chapter 12, uh, 5 and 6 in Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And in, in some translations, or actually in a more literal translation, when it talks about chastising, the word is actually scourges. And a scourge was a whip that was embedded with metal and glass, and it would rip the flesh off of a person's body. So sometimes the discipline that God imposes on us is very painful. We can endure great suffering under his loving hand, and it's for a good purpose, to make us holy, to prepare us to be in his presence. And he does that because he loves us. <clears throat> now, we're also assured in Romans uh, chapter 8, 35 through 39, that we can never be separated from God's love. Nobody can separate us. Romans 8, 35 through 39 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can separate us from God's love. Nothing that can keep us from being the beneficiaries of God's self-giving, self-sacrificing, good-seeking, everlasting love. Even we can't separate ourselves from him and that love. So now because we are God's children, if we have trusted in Christ alone for our salvation, because love is a communicable attribute, attribute we are responsible to love the way God loves. Our love is to be self-giving. It is to be sacrificial. It is to seek the good of others, not our own benefit. It's not Hollywood version of love where you love somebody because they make you feel good. That is not love. 
Love is seeking and doing good to others as God does to us. Um, Jesus says this in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. He died for us. We're to be willing to die for our brothers and sisters in Christ for one another. 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Christ's love for his people, for us, for the church, is also the example of how husbands are to love their wives. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. So how are you doing with that one? I know that I fall short. And our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is evidence that we follow Christ, that we actually are true believers. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And <clears throat> this love for the brethren that we are to have as Christ followers, as God's children, it, I've already mentioned it's not that Hollywood version. Okay? It results in concrete acts of love. 1 John 3.17 says this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, in other words, doesn't give him what that brother needs, how does God's love abide in him? So if you see somebody in need and you have the means to help them, uh, particularly a brother or sister in Christ, and you say, well, I'm sorry about your situation, but I'll pray for you when you could actually help relieve their situation. There should be conviction there. And then Galatians 5.22 uh, makes it very clear that uh, if we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, uh, one of the fruits of the Spirit is, in fact, love. First one, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God is love. He loves us, and he's demonstrated that love most um, powerfully uh, by saving us through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. He made us his children. He disciplines us in love for our good, and we are to love God and others as he has loved us. Communicable attribute. Any questions about Love of God? Next, we're going to look at uh, grace, mercy, and patience. And some theologians group those three attributes together as aspects of God's goodness and love. Most actually um, examine them separately, and we're going to do that sort of, but we will um, acknowledge the fact that they are related to God's goodness and love. So first of all, First of the three attributes um, is grace. But, like I said before, you find these three um, often grouped together, especially in the Old Testament. So uh, God told Moses his name, and we'll come back to this passage a little bit later. In Exodus 34, 6, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, which is another, another reference to his patience, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in Psalm 103.8, David says the same thing. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now, since these attributes are often found together, as they are in these passages, it might seem difficult to sort out the difference between them. 
there is a relationship between them. Rarely do you ever see them mentioned separately, but there are some differences. So just to give you some brief definitions, <clears throat> grace means God's goodness or favor um, towards those who only deserve punishment, unmerited favor. Uh, mercy means God's goodness towards those who are suffering or in misery. And patience means God's goodness in withholding of punishment toward those who are in an ongoing state of sin and rebellion. So let's look at grace. The definition of grace was God's goodness or favor towards those who deserve only punishment, unmerited favor. In other words, God does good to those who don't deserve it. And Scripture portrays God as abounding or overflowing in grace. And that's seen in a huge number of passages throughout the Old and New Testament. Uh, they refer to His grace again and again. And like I said before, it's often mentioned with mercy, patience, and love, and goodness. In the passage mentioned earlier, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in 2 Chronicles 39, if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land, for the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. And Joel 2.13, and rend your heart, not your garments, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. <clears throat> God is abundant in grace, as he is in mercy, patience, goodness, and love. And when we understand that grace is never owed, grace is never earned, because if it could be earned, then it would be a matter of justice. It wouldn't be a matter of grace. But in fact, we don't deserve God's grace. We only deserve God's judgment. We deserve death and hell. And when we understand that about grace, then we should um, better understand how good and loving uh, our Father really is. We only deserve His judgment, His punishment, but He lavishes grace on us. We should also be able to better understand that when God gives grace to others, <clears throat> not necessarily in the form of salvation, but some other form of grace, which we'll talk about, he gives grace to somebody else, but not to us. <clears throat> um, he hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything unjust. He's not obligated to give us anything. So if we were to be angry with God or envious of some favor that was bestowed on someone else, it would show uh, that we think we deserve something. Uh, we think we deserve favor from God, and we don't. If God chooses to be gracious to some and withhold grace from others, he has done nothing wrong. He's done nothing unjust. Now, theologians will frequently divide God's gracious actions into two separate categories, uh, common grace and saving grace. Common grace is God's action in sustaining and providing for everything in creation, everything. It's his grace in restraining evil keeping evil at bay so that the world doesn't descend into complete chaos, although we look around today and it looks like it might be in chaos, but it could be much worse. And um, it's grace that allows mankind to develop 
uh, to create, to experience happiness even when they reject him. And the blessings of common grace most often are taken for granted. We just ignore uh, the graces that God has bestowed on us. I mean, I, I, this is a thought I had a long, long time ago. God could feed us, and I remember this because I used to be a deputy sheriff and worked out at Lerdo, and when somebody was being disciplined, we would feed them this thing. It was like a burger, but it was this horrible thing. But it had all the nutrients that were necessary. There was, you know, there was no spices or salt or anything. It was just something that would keep them alive. And that's really all God had to do for us, but he's given us this infinite variety of foods and flavors and you know, wonderful things to enjoy. He didn't have to do that. We take that for granted. Um, even God's keeping everything in creation in order from flying apart at the seams, the atoms, planetary orbits, orbits and our aspects of common sustaining grace. Colossians 1.17 says this, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And David affirms it in Psalm 145.9. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made, even those who reject him. And Jesus' words in Luke 6.35, But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God is kind to evil people of this world. Common grace. The other category of grace is saving grace. And that's God's extending grace to us to save us from the consequences of sin through the death and resurrection of Christ, restoring us to right relationship with him, adopting us into his family, which we've talked about already as a, an example of his love, giving us eternal life, and also ensuring our growth in godliness. In other words, the gospel, okay? Gospel is the greatest manifestation or outworking of God's grace. But it was also present in the Old Testament as well, and that was seen in the sacrificial system that actually looked forward to the death of Christ and salvation through God's saving grace. That was extended to the Old Testament saints who placed their trust in um, their faith in God. Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's also restated by Paul in Romans 4, 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's uh, other graces extended as well, uh, especially to believers besides the grace of the gospel, although that would certainly be enough, more than enough. Uh, but there's also material blessings uh, the grace of material blessing, 2 Corinthians 8.1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Uh, there is also the grace to endure suffering, 2 Corinthians 12.9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's grace uh, towards someone can simply mean that he is determined to bless that individual in various unspecified ways. Exodus 33, 13, <clears throat> now therefore, if I have found favor, grace in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor, grace in your sight. 
Consider, too, that this nation is your people. <clears throat> and then in verse 16, For how shall it be known that I have found favor, grace, in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? Just the fact that God was with Israel, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Psalm 45, 2, <clears throat> You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. God continually extended grace to Israel and specific individuals in Israel, even though they didn't deserve it. <clears throat> Not just their salvation, but all of these other forms of blessing. And then in the New Testament, in Luke 2.40, Jesus is described as having God's grace. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. <clears throat> That's a pretty clear example that grace can be manifested in other ways than salvation because Jesus certainly didn't need to be saved. He came to save. Then in Acts 4.33, God's grace also empowers. God's grace empowers the apostles. <clears throat> um, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. In Hebrews 4.16, believers are also told uh, to bring their prayers before the throne of grace. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. <clears throat> but as I said earlier, and we all know, uh, actually Caleb preached on this last week, the gospel of our salvation is the greatest manifestation of God's grace. It is a work of God for us, Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, not just Israel and not every single person on the earth, but people from all over the world. In Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing, it is the gift of God. Grace is God's means of salvation through Christ. Romans 3.24, and um, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> by grace, Christ died for us, Hebrews 2.9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He died by the grace of God. By grace, we're redeemed and forgiven by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 1, 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And our election or choosing for salvation is by grace. Romans eleven five. so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Our calling to salvation and service is by grace. 2 Timothy 1, 9 who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Our faith is by grace, Acts 18, 27. And when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those through who through grace had believed and then, of course, Ephesians 2.8, which we mentioned earlier, for by grace you've been saved through faith. <clears throat> Justification is by grace. 
Titus 3, 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And our sanctification or growth in Christ-likeness is by grace. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then, as believers, we are told to grow in grace. 2 Peter 3.18, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now and to the day of eternity. Believers also have comfort and hope by grace. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. We're strengthened by grace. 2 Timothy 2.1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We have eternal life by grace. Romans 5.21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Every aspect of salvation from beginning to end is by grace. The gospel is the greatest display of God's grace. Our ability to please God is by his grace. The ability to do his will is by his grace. Our spiritual gifts for serving God and one another are by his grace. All that we have, all that we are in Christ is by his grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Finally, Jesus is said to be full of grace. John 1, 14. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. <clears throat> and the Holy Spirit is also referred to as the Spirit of grace. And then in Hebrews 10.29, and that's in Hebrews 10.29, God is a God of grace, and he has been infinitely gracious to us and continues to be infinitely gracious to us. Any questions on grace? Okay, next is mercy. <clears throat> mercy is, again, a display of God's goodness towards those who are in misery and distress. David says in 2 Samuel 24, 14, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. And then the blind men who appeal <clears throat> to Jesus, crying aloud uh, as Jesus passed, uh, have mercy on us, son of David. And Paul relates God's comfort in affliction to mercy. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And as with grace, we are to come before the throne to receive mercy when we are in need. That's Hebrews 4.16, which we mentioned earlier. And uh, then uh, we are also, because it's a communicable attribute, attribute like the others, uh, we are to be merciful. 
uh, ourselves as God's children. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comforts, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we can comfort those who are in affliction. <clears throat> David says, um, well, this actually uh, another point, God shows mercy in forgiving sinners. David says in Psalm 41.4, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. And in Luke 18.13, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God's mercy never fails. Lamentations 3.22, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And of course, God's extending grace to us through the gospel, through Christ, was a profound act of mercy because as sinners, we were truly in misery and great distress, even though we may not have known it at the time. We were unable to save ourselves. We were dead in sin, and we were under God's wrath. But he showed mercy on us. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So you see how grace and mercy and his patience, his love, his goodness all uh, interact with one another. The last, uh, any questions about mercy? <clears throat> Slight difference between grace and mercy, but certainly related. Okay, so the last attribute will be God's patience or long-suffering. God's patience, also connected to mercy, grace, love, and goodness. And in most cases, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, God's patience or long-suffering is with sinners in holding off judgment against their sin, holding off their punishment. One example of this is when <clears throat> Moses comes down uh, from Sinai finds people worshiping an idol, golden calf, smashes the tablets, goes back up the mountain to get another copy from God, uh, but before God graciously gives those to him, he reminds Moses in Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, um, slow to anger, patience, long-suffering. And there's many passages that affirm God's patience with sinners. Psalm 86, 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Joel 2, 13, And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. <clears throat> Whenever you see uh, slow to anger, that is translated in other um, translations as uh, patience or long-suffering. In the New Testament, God's patience is seen particularly withholding judgment in order to allow time for sinners to repent and to turn to Christ. Romans 2.4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In 1 Timothy 1.16, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, 
Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's also patient in not responding to demands for vengeance, even when that's justified. God also patiently withholds judgment so that when it does come, it's absolutely clear that the judgment is deserved. Romans 9.22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? prepared for destruction. God is patient, and as his children, we are to also display patience with others. Not that we're all at all capable of doing that on our own. Uh, In fact, patience is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's not something that we come by naturally. Again, Galatians 5.22, through the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and all the others. And as with all the communicable attributes, we are to do likewise. We are to be like God in showing patience, exercising patience. Uh, Colossians 1.13, be patient with one another. If any of you has a complaint against another, forgive that one. Christ forgave you, so you should forgive each other. Be patient. Don't pray for patience unless you want things that will provoke you to be impatient. But anyway, any questions on patience, long-suffering? Any questions on any of those? So I had originally planned to uh, talk about God's holiness. Uh, we're going to devote a whole uh, session to God's holiness uh, next week. So uh, that's it for now.